from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know what I had for dinner last night at 1245? What? Two microwavable hot dogs and a Guinness. Oh my God, nothing has changed. <laughs> no, it hasn't. <laughs> I've known you since the 90s, and nothing has changed. Why should it? Wait, Dave. Do you remember that there was that place that you had in Laurel Canyon and one night one of your roadies fell asleep <laughs> over the heating vent? Yes. That house was so old that the only heating vent was right in the front door of the house. And he our, fell asleep our, in the hallway. Our drum tech, John John, was sleeping That's on right, the couch, John John. but he was so cold. So he took my jacket, put it over this massive heating vent, and fell asleep on it and woke up on fire. On fire, that's right. I remember that. Those were the I remember days. That. Those were the days. Well, by the way, the barbecue in Laurel Canyon, which sounds really fancy, but at that house when you were having the barbecue, it was literally what you had microwave for dinner last night. It was like a couple of corn dogs and like 24 beers. It was heaven. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? 
What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. And today I'm talking to Dave Grohl. I first met Dave when his band Foo Fighters were the live music at a Versace runway show in New York in 1998. I was dressed in white from head to toe. It was a slightly futuristic look, high collared, stiff fabric. Dave said I looked like Ziggy Stardust's dental hygienist. And our friendship of 23 years was born. For all his many achievements, at heart to me, Dave is one of our most profound storytellers. Nirvana was legendary. It defined and created an entire genre of music. But for me, Foo Fighters and the myriad side projects Dave always has in play speak to an ongoing, restless exploration of creative evolution. I have never met a person who literally and figuratively refuses to sit still as much as Dave. And to me, it's genuinely what makes him great. The first question is... Where and when were you happiest? Well, I hope that I haven't been my happiest yet. I have lots of very fond memories. I think I've been happiest more than a few times, but, you know, I think you find different versions of happiness. I find a lot of happiness everywhere, even in the unhappiest times, because I sort of search for it. Do you mine for happiness? Is that something that you consciously do? I do. I'm a little bit more of a big picture type. I try not to get caught in crisis so much that I can't see outside of it. So if I'm deep in it, I stop and remind myself of the big picture. Was that taught? Was that from your amazing mother? Or was that how you've always rolled? I'm sure that it's taught in some way, maybe like inadvertently. Yeah, I'm, you know, I was raised by my mother, single parent. My parents split up when I was, I think, six years old, seven years old, something like that. So my mother raised me in our tiny little house, and she was a public school teacher, and we didn't really have money, and sometimes the heat would get turned off, and the phone would get turned off, and the lights would get turned off, and we'd have scrambled eggs for dinner and things like that. But my mother was really good at making us feel like we had enough all the time. So I had a really happy childhood. I didn't have much, but I was happy. And that really did come from my mother. It was as simple as going to a jazz club on a Sunday with my mother and realizing that, oh, she's cool and we're friends, but she's my mom. My friends don't hang out with their parents. Hmm. From an early age, I felt like you play the hand that you're dealt, and that's kind of it. And there's no use in wishing against things you can't change, you know? And so when I would be in the middle of crisis or an uncomfortable situation, I would always try to remind myself of the big picture. I'm sure it goes back to my childhood, but I still feel that way. You know, I think you also set your own bar in a way. You know, some people are perfectly happy sitting on their couch playing video games for 12 hours a day. Other people are only happy when they're skydiving. Yes. So it's relative. 
I like your spectrum, Gears of War, to jumping out of an airplane. I mean, I like it. to be honest, I'm sort of <laughs> both, you know, like I'll, I could be perfectly happy sitting on a couch with two hot dogs and a Guinness watching Dumb and Dumber again, you know, or perfectly happy running on stage at Wembley Stadium and conducting 80,000 people to sing a song with me. So like those two oh. things, you know, you walk off stage and you, you're like, oh, my God, the adrenaline. It's like skydiving. It really is. It's a bungee jump. But then I'm just as happy, you know, sitting in traffic and listening to Bill Withers or whatever. And I think it's just because you have to be open to it. My dear friend and love of my life, Pat Smear, who plays guitar in the Foo Fighters. Yeah. He is the most amazing, beautiful person because he has this contagious sense of reassurance where even in the worst fucking tragedy, you can look at each other and laugh. Like how much more absurd could life be? You know, the ups and downs of life and, and the range of that dynamic. You know, when things are at their peak, you look at each other and you're like, oh my fucking God. When things are at the bottom, the lowest of the low, you look at each other and you just go, oh my fucking God. It's strange, though, because I was just talking about this the other day. We have a song called Waiting on a War that just came out. And I wrote the song about a year and a half ago. I wrote it. And when I was young, growing up outside of Washington, D.C., my greatest fear was war. In the early 80s, when there was political tension and it was Russia and it was Reagan and there was just this anxiety of you know conflict and conservatism and being so close to Washington, D.C., I always thought, okay, there's going to be a war and we're going to be the first ones to get it because this is the nation's capital. And I was kind of obsessed with it. And then a year and a half ago, I was taking my daughter Harper, who's 11 years old, to school. I'm driving her to school and she turns to me and she goes, Dad, is there going to be a war? And it broke my heart because I thought she's now living under this like dark cloud of a hopeless future 40 years after I did the same thing. I felt the same as she did. And I was heartbroken. I'm like, you know, her childhood is being stolen from her by this fear of war. And I immediately wrote the song. And I wrote it for her. And I'm only mentioning this because I did have this weird nihilistic, pessimistic side to me as a kid. And it's unfair. Like, it's so unfair. Why should anyone go through it? But children, you know, God forbid they turn on the fucking television and see what's going on. I'd rather have her listen to the song. Because in the song, I say, you know, I've been waiting on a war since I was young. Is there more to this than just waiting on a war? Because God, ugh. Anyway, so I did have this pessimistic side to me when I was a kid, but I sort of countered it with this maybe naive optimism where I would just think, I know, but birds sounds are pretty. I, you know what I mean? Like I would just like get on my skateboard and crawl through the sewers and be like, yay. You know, like, I don't know. I think to the bad answer stuff. the question that you asked 14 minutes ago, <laughs> yes, I mine for happiness because I think you have to live with a sense of hope and you have to be able to find goodness and happiness even in the worst times. I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually think the worst times throw into relief what is good and what is meaningful and actually help 
define happiness a lot better than happiness itself. You got to find it. You look for it. I think you're right. You have to make the effort. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so next question. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? Well, the relationship with my mother, no question. Yeah, you know, as as a parent, 
you understand that the love that you receive from your child is just it's incomparable. It's unlike any other love. And the same can be said for your relationship with your parent. So I've always said her, like, that's the one because, you know, not only was I given this unconditional love, but I was also, I was given so much more. I was given freedom. She disciplined me with freedom, if that makes any sense. She really yeah, it does. did. We were so close <laughs> and I had so much respect. I still do. I still have, we're still close. I still have so much respect for her that the last thing I would want to do is disappoint her because I didn't want to jeopardize not only our relationship, but my freedom. freedom. So she yeah. was like, you know, okay, you can listen to satanic death metal. It's funny. I'm interested in what I think the only way of being a good parent is being cognizant of what it is we took from our parents, both good and oh, bad. Oh, no question. First right. of all, if you believe any of this, I have a bridge to sell you. How about that? But then, no, I mean, <laughs> um, no, I mean, of course, that's the foundation. My mother wrote this book about mothers of musicians. Oh, that's uh, right. Four years ago. And she interviewed all these different mothers. She interviewed Dr. Dre's mom. She interviewed Pharrell's mom. She interviewed Michael Stipe's mother. She interviewed like, I don't know, 15 or 20 different mothers. It was interesting because there were parallels a lot of the experiences were the same. Some of the relationships were a bit different, the mother-child relationships. But ultimately, you have to imagine that that relationship is your first love, right? And if you become an artist, typically love is your greatest muse. Like that's the, not only the foundation of who you are and what you become and the relationships you have with other people, but it also, you know, it becomes your lens. So that's how you see the world, you know, whether it's in a, a dark, tortured focus or it's something more romantic. And like, it, I mean, a, a lot of that is that that foundation is laid by your first example of love. And that usually comes from your parents. I remember asking her once about being a teenager in rural Ohio in the 40s, in the late 40s. And um, I was asking her about peer pressure, if she had any sort of like social anxieties. And she said, she said, I never really compared myself to anyone else. And I thought, that is the greatest nugget of wisdom my mother has ever dropped in my stocking. It was like, <laughs> she, like I've never compared myself to anyone. And what a perfect way to be, I thought. It's, uh, it's extremely evolved to be able to go, I never compared myself to anyone. Not the notion that anyone is better or worse, but rather... I am myself. That's a good person to teach you what the scaffolding should look like around your life, around love, around the way we see ourselves. I love your mum. It's cool. Okay, what question would you most like answered? The thing about UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to know? Yeah, totally. Come on. I totally like the Kennedy thing. I mean, you know, and then there's the thing about like the Big Bang and God and whatever. I'm more into the UFOs. I'm with you. I, I went out. My sister worked at a Ben and Jerry's in Provincetown when I was 16 and I went to spend the summer with her. And I went out to those dunes every night looking for the UFOs. And one night. Thing. I know. One night, this guy gave me something to smoke and. I saw the goddamn UFOs. It was super cool because the next day when I worked in the Ben and Jerry's with my sister, I was like, 
listen, the UFOs are for real. And because I was so English, they all believed me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's what you want to know. No, but really, I mean, when I was young, I don't know why or how it started, but I would do that thing where I would lay in my front yard and just stare at the sky. When you weren't thinking about there being a war that was going to wipe you out, I'm sure, of course, you thought that there were aliens who might possibly be there to come and save you. I mean, I still do. Screams, please, Mr. Freud. I still do. (laughs) I I have to be honest. But um, no, the UFO thing. See, here's the funny thing about the UFO thing. So since I was young, like when I was young, I'd like lay in the front yard and I'd be like, contact me or whatever. (laughs) I never saw anything weird, but I'd have these amazing dreams. First of all, I'm a crazy vivid dreamer. I remember dreams from when I was four years old. I remember dreams from when I was eight years old and 14 years old. I still vividly remember them. I can see them in my mind. I had these crazy UFO dreams where I'm like walking on a hill in somewhere in Italy on the coast and it's at dusk right as the stars are coming out and there's people walking around it's a beautiful night and all of a sudden the stars just like implode and the sky is filled with ufos and there's these things being projected in the sky explaining the evolution of man but it's not sound it's like telepathically being explained to you in your mind and then a map of the world and how like all the territories have been redefined and like crazy stuff like that but here's the thing (laughs) i remember once going to a psychic i wasn't going to the psychic for me i was dropping off my girlfriend at the time at the psychic. This is in Sydney, Australia. And someone said, there's this French woman in this apartment complex outside of Sydney. She's the real deal. She'll know you're coming. Right. So you don't even knock. So I drop off my girlfriend and she has this horrible reading. And then I walk in and the lady's like, no, 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 sit down, sit down. Oh, oh, and she only speaks French. So my girlfriend who also spoke French was translating. So I sit down and she's like, Ooh, you have a lot of energy. And I'm like, I know I'm a spaz. I've had a lot of coffee. And she's like, no, you have a lot of energy. Like your hands, they're they're like glowing. And I'm like, fuck yes. This is amazing. My girlfriend was just told like, our relationship's not going to work, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. She was right. And and then now she's got to translate this, this, the psychic who's saying like, you have psychic power. But the best, (laughs) the best part was she goes, do you see ghosts? And I said, no. I mean, I lived in a house that had like creepy thing. The the vibe was weird, but now I don't see ghosts. I said, I have dreams about UFOs. And she goes, those aren't dreams. (laughs) I was like, God, I love it. Yes. Yes. Killer. What person, place, or experience most altered your life? I would have to say the first time I saw a band play on a stage. Who who was it? It was a punk rock band, actually. I had never been to a rock concert. And it was a band called Naked Ray Gun. They were like an infamous (laughs) punk rock band (laughs) from Chicago. And I can't think of anything else that, that changed or formed my future than that moment. I was in this like you know dark bar that smelled like bleach and beer and then these four guys walk on stage and rip jeans and like one two three four bam and they started playing and like my chest was against the stage and their sweat was on me and their spit was on me and i was getting thrown around um by people with like mohawks and so i was like 
this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. In between the ages of like 11 and 13. It's a really formative age because you're discovering independence. You're no longer just a child that needs to hold someone's hand when they cross the street. So you're kind of discovering who you are. And at that time, you sort of connect to things that become your identity, right? I'm really into football. So then you start playing football. But with music, if the hooks get deep enough that they sort of like catch that newly introspective part of your identity, oh, so now you have somewhere to put it. Like, oh, I'll pick up a guitar and I could put it there. I could pick up the drums. I could put it there. Wait, were you already a drummer when you saw uh, Naked Ray Gun? No. Uh, I started playing guitar, I think, when I was like 10. So I was playing guitar, but I could understand the drums. I didn't have a drum set. I had a pair of drumsticks. So I would set up these pillows on my floor in my bedroom in the configuration of a drum set. Yeah, but you're a proper muso, Dave. Like, you play... You play everything, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, I don't know how to play everything. I just try to play everything. So it's that whole fake it till you make it thing. You know, I know people that are like accomplished musicians that spent a lot of time taking lessons and being formally trained to do what they do. But then I know a lot of musicians that picked up records and just sort of played by ear. And I think not that either is better, but... One of the benefits of learning how to do it yourself is that there really is no right or wrong because you're sort of inventing your own weird theory. So you wind up doing things that some might consider uh, you know, unusual, but that leads to innovation and progress. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. 
Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Okay, this is my favorite question. What would be your last meal? And you're not allowed to say you're sodding corn dogs and beer. No, you can, if that's what it is. No, that wouldn't be it. It's a toss-up. Can I say two different things? Yeah, it can be your lunch and your dinner. Okay. Okay. A feast. (laughs) Years ago, when the Foo Fighters were touring Australia, we were on our way to the gig... And I saw a KFC and I said to Gus, our tour manager, Hey Gus, could you get a bucket of KFC for after the show? I don't think I'd had a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken since I was nine years old at like soccer practice. Like it had been a really, really long time. And he's like, yeah, sure. What do you want? You want extra crispy? Or (laughs) I was like, no, original recipe, please. (laughs) Just a bucket. So then we go up on stage and we play for two and a half hours. I'm like, <laughs> and I walk off stage, I've got a towel around my neck, heading down the hallway. I could smell that shit from 50 yards away. And I'm like, oh, you got the KFC. Like, you got the KFC. And I walk in and there's a hot steaming bucket of KFC right there. I'm like, oh, and I'm exhausted. And I just, you know, lost five pounds on stage by sweating. So I need salt. Like I need, I'm like, Ugh. and I'm like, I open it up and I'm just like, I'm like a raccoon in a dumpster. I'm just like, I'm just like bones flying. And then I'm so thirsty. I'm like, okay, there's nothing to drink except right next to me in a bucket of ice was a bottle of champagne. So I go and I open the champagne and I take a sip and then I eat another piece of chicken. Then I go back to the champagne. Then I go to the chicken and I'm like, Oh my God, you guys have to try this. <laughs> you have to try this. Everyone's like, what? I'm like, get a piece of chicken, get a little champagne and see what happens. I'm not like, I can't go into like a culinary diatribe about the juxtaposition and mouthfeel of fried chicken and champagne. Trust me. It's good. And by the way, in Australia, what do you think the K stands for? Kangaroo. <laughs> How many made a joke? Okay. And then years later, I rented a motorcycle while we had a day off in Paris and we drove up into the Champagne region and took a little tour of the 
Moet Chandon. <laughs> did you caves. did you tell those French people that they needed to be serving their champagne with KFC? I bet you did. I fucking did. <laughs> After the tour, we're back in this little garden, and this guy's like white gloves, tuxedo. He's like opening stuff and smelling it. No, this one's not good enough. And then he like opens another one, and it was like a rose. He's like, This is rose. It's very nice with salmon and seafood and shit. And then he goes, I'll tell you what He opens up another <laughs> bottle of like champagne, and he's like, This is very nice with it. And I, I go, Excuse me. You know what's really good with champagne? Fried chicken, motherfucker. <laughs> He's like, what is this fried chicken? What are you talking about? Shut up. I love that that was your, I love that that's one. Okay, if there's another one as good as that, you're allowed to eat both of them. The other one is, where I grew up in Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., we're not far from the Chesapeake Bay. The Chesapeake Bay, it's kind of at the edge of, D.C. and Maryland. It's hard to explain. But as a child, you spend a lot of time going to the beaches out there or going to the bay. But there's a specific sort of like culinary history to that area, whether it's oysters or clams or blue crabs, things like that. So when I was young, we would always go down to the wharf and buy seafood from the boats that came directly off of the Chesapeake Bay. So we would get like a bushel of crabs and there's a, there's a specific way to have blue crabs on the Chesapeake Bay way. They're steamed. They're not boiled. They're seasoned with this stuff called old Bay seasoning and the ceremony of eating these things. I mean, from each crab, you're lucky if you get a tablespoon of crab meat, right? But it's more of a ritual. So you steam these crabs, you have a table and you lay newspaper all over the table. You steam the crabs and season them with old base seasoning. You have some sides, maybe corn on the cob, maybe hush puppies or some sort of like starchy thing and a lot of beer. And then you just dump this bushel of steamed crabs covered in this seasoning on the table and everyone just sits there and drinks beer and picks crabs for like six hours. And your lips are burning because it's spicy. Your fingers are orange because of the seasoning. You've had 47 beers because it's so salty. <laughs> but you've wound up telling each other the best stories you have to tell. And so... It tastes delicious, and it is my favorite. That is, without a doubt, my favorite meal. I can't imagine that any warden would allow me that on my <laughs> last no, day. No, no, no. In my in my prison, which you're in, you can have crab with uh, with orange seasoning and forty seven beers for sure. Last question, Davo. In your life. Can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster? Uh, the Foo Fighters. Oh, babe. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I mean, when we started this band, you know, we didn't imagine that it would last as long as it has. But I think one of the reasons it's lasted as long as it has is because of what it represents to us. So when Nirvana ended... I couldn't imagine doing that 
again. But I realized that music was what had kept me alive up until that point. And in order for me to survive, I needed it. So this band, when we first started it, the foundation was this continuation of life. Not just music. It was like a continuation of life. I would have to say it's that. Because over the years, even in the heartbreak or ups and downs of the last 25 years, <clears throat> the band has always been not just an anchor, but kind of uh, like it's like a home. And so you don't just feel like you're an island and you're, you know, floating in nothingness. It's like I can always lean back on this thing. And again, not just musically. It's a really emotional experience and this it's a real world that we've created over the last 25 years and so I don't know where I would be or who I would be without it. I feel like the luckiest person in the world that that it happened. It's an extraordinary example of what I had hoped to elicit from that question. I would also add having been on the tour bus with all of you and the band, that in addition to it being, you know, home and they are such excellent people, it is a proper fart shop <laughs> around about Listen. 10 hours into a drive. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I was explaining this to someone the other day that that there's really no musical prerequisite to be in the Foo Fighters. Barely. Hardly. That's not that's not the the top of our list. It's more of emotional aesthetic. It's the type of person that you are. But you know, you just you know. It's like you know when you meet the love of your life. You know when you meet your best friend. You know when you meet that person that you're just like it's just like that. You're like, okay, it's just like that. And the same thing can be said musically. It's just like, okay, we're not going to say anything. Put on your instrument and let's talk to each other for a while. And that comes from like the person that you are. You guys are excellent people. You, you really oh, are. It's the, it is. It's one of the most fun times I ever had ever was the short time I was on tour with you guys. It was. Oh um, my God. Hold on a second. What? Remember when we played the Monsters of Rock Festival? Yeah. At and Milton, Milton Keynes. Keynes. Yeah. When you went on after Pantera. That was a great show there. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to kind of blow your mind. Okay. So that day, we meet our metal heroes, Pantera, right? Yeah. Who are the sweetest people in the world. After the show, the drummer, Vinny, God rest his soul, is not with us anymore. Yes. Neither is Dimebag. Both of the brothers are no, gone. No, I know. They've yeah. gone. And, uh, and they were the most beautiful people. I love them so much. Uh, Vinny drummer gives me this his business card hands it to me and it's a strip club called the clubhouse he goes man next time you're in texas outside of dallas you got to come visit us at the clubhouse and i'm like oh my god you have your own strip <laughs> club he's like hell yeah i do i'm like great and this is just before i was moving from los angeles back to virginia 98 or 99 or whatever it was so I knew that I was going to make this road trip. It was Taylor and I in my Chevy Tahoe driving across country. I mean, talk about Dumb and Dumber. Come on. So 
we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to route this tour around a visit at Pantera's strip club. Oh my God. So we, we sort of like, okay, first day we're going to get to Phoenix. We're going to spend the night there. The next day we're going to get to blah, blah, blah. But on the third night, we're going to get to Dallas. Taylor's going to visit his family. He's got relatives there. And then after we have that dinner, we're going straight to the clubhouse. Like, yes, and I'm in my Chevy Tahoe. First day of the trip, we're driving, we stop for gas, we're blaring, you know, fog hat and whatever, Steppenwolf and Ted Nugent. We get to Phoenix, we go to check into the hotel, and I had left my wallet on the gas pump in Barstow, California. My credit cards, ID, everything. And I'm like, oh my God. And Taylor said, okay, I'll check us in. I immediately call my accountant and I'm like, dude, I lo- I just lost all of my credit cards and stuff. And he said, well, you know, it's going to take you a while to get some of those back, but I'll, I'll FedEx you something. So he does. We get to Dallas. We have the dinner with Taylor's family. And we're like, all right, we're going to the clubhouse. And this is like a 700 mile detour, by the way. Like this is not a shortcut to Springfield, Virginia. This is like, <laughs> we're taking a hard right and going way over here just to go to this club. We pull up to the club, doorman. He says, uh, can I see your IDs, please? And I'm like, uh, oh, well, I, I actually just lost my, my driver's license the other day in California. And uh, he was like, I'm sorry, buddy. I can't let you in. And I said, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. But I'm, I, I think I was like 30 at the time or whatever. I'm like, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm of age. He goes, I'm sorry, brother. I can't let you in. If, if, if the cops came and found you, I'd get busted. And Taylor goes, yeah, but we're friends with Pantera. And the guy's, <laughs> the guy's like, he's like, everybody's friends with Pantera. <laughs> I tried. I called Vinny. Couldn't get in touch with anyone. Never got into the club. Oh, that is the saddest story back in the truck with my tail between my legs got back to virginia are you kidding you literally went 700 miles and it and you didn't even get in yes but here's the best part that was 1998 i think about 10 years later i was in oxnard california at a surf shop buying sunglasses for my daughter violet who was about three years old at the time and i walk up to the cash register and the nice surfer girl who worked there says, are you Dave Grohl? Oh my God. I said, yes. And she said, did you lose your wallet in Barstow, California 10 years ago? And I said, yes. And she said, that was my parents' gas station. No. And then she said, they still have your wallet. (laughs) I gave her my address and they sent my wallet back to me. No. The end. Oh my end god. Of the end. By the way, you can't follow that. You can't follow that. So listen. That's it. You just have to see the big picture, Minnie. The oh my big god, you brought picture. it all the way back around. Okay. See? You have to find the happiness. It might not be immediate. You might have to wait ten years to get it back. Gotta look at that big picture. I'll drink to that. I'll drink to that and I'll eat KFC to that, babe. Foo Fighters just released an 11-minute video of Dave performing Everlong at Oats Songfest 7908. It features Dave telling the beautiful background story of how that song was written and of the first formative performances of it. Storytelling is an art. Dave is a bit of a master at it. 
Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoy. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikado. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.